Father, thank you for this teaching in Matthew's Gospel. And specifically for what we've read this morning. And as we think of this privilege of prayer, its practice and its power, please help and equip us, encourage us. Teach us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Just a couple of um, book plugs. So many books on prayer. We've got Richard Foster's book on prayer, wonderful book. Um, in the, the bookstall, and so next week, if you'd like to get hold of a copy, I think we've also got copies of this, Bill Hybels, I'll make mention of this this morning, Too Busy Not to Pray, uh, The Practice of Slowing Down to Be with God. Um, Bill Hybels, uh, leader of Willow Creek Church in Chicago, one of the biggest and most successful, not a great word to use in church context, but nevertheless, um, an impressive and I think in many ways fruitful church uh, that he and his team have grown. And this book arises out of that ministry, Too Busy Not to Pray. Uh, speaks to our culture, I think, on the subject of prayer. And then a classic from uh, R.A. Torrey, who uh, died um, coming up 100 years ago, uh, but lectured at the Divinity School in Yale. Uh, How to Pray, a, a moody classic. It's a short series of uh, books um, after the, the D.L. Moody. And uh, this, a classic on prayer. How to Pray, R.A. Torrey. I'm not sure we have got that in the bookstore, but if you get hold of that, you can get it on Amazon or um, a Christian bookshop, then I recommend it. It's just over 100 pages, but worth its weight in gold. Last week, we um, kicked off this series, this term on prayer, thinking of prayer as access, Christian prayer, addressed to God the Father, which is uniquely our privilege through the sacrifice of Christ, our Son. And uh, our prayer, our connection, our access to God is inspired and fueled, sometimes carried, by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm very conscious as I um, speak, I guess I'll be doing most of the talks on prayer, that prayer is a little bit like sex. Those who tend to talk about it most are those who tend to practice it least. And... uh, so I conclude my talk on prayer this morning. No. <laughs> Our Father in heaven, access, intimate access with the creator of the universe, the great security of prayer. And this morning I want to talk about the secret of prayer and the silence in prayer by way of preparation. As much as I want to, to say in the coming weeks on, on if you like, how we pray, the different practice of prayer, and how the power of prayer can be released in our lives, individually and corporately. But by way of preparation, uh, this week and then in two weeks' time, after the the baptism service next week, I want to say a a little bit. First, prayer as as a secret activity. And here we are, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, this very familiar, these verses 9 to 4, 13 here, so familiar to us because they've been lifted and we call them the Lord's Prayer, his kind of template on how to pray. But you'll know that that's just part uh, of a whole series of teaching, Matthew chapter 5 through to the end of 7, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount, whether it was delivered in one go or whether it's a collection of Jesus' teaching over a period of time that Matthew has gathered together for us. We're not entirely sure. I don't think it much matters. Here is some intense teaching of Jesus on what the kingdom looks like fleshed out in our lives. It's not so much 
a series of directives. This is what you ought to do as indicatives. This is who you are. Beginning with the Beatitudes at the start of chapter 5. And then, for example, verse 13. He says it's indicative. You are the salt of the earth. Or verse 14. You are the light of the world. That's, that's how you see. So the issue is how as salt or how as light do you live? What will that look like? Salt will have its impact. Light will have its impact. And if this is who you are, then you should release saltiness. Allow light to flood from your being. And so, vis-à-vis the law, in terms of murder, as he goes on to teach, or in terms of adultery, it's not so much, what can I get away with to shore up my outer appearance? He wants to ask the question, how's your heart? You see, the legalist can begin to say, well, I can get away with looking at that woman in an unhelpful or lustful way because I'm not actually, according to the law, committing the physical act of adultery. So it's okay. And Jesus says, you've missed the point. The whole point of the law is as a diagnostic to your heart. And so I tell you, if you look at a woman lustfully, or a woman, you look at a man lustfully, you are in the process of committing adultery in the heart. And if your heart is solid then it's only a matter of time before the whole life is impacted. Hard-hitting teaching and the Sermon on the Mount. And when it comes to, well, it comes to giving just before the text, chapter 6 and verse 1, be careful, he says, don't trumpet it like these hypocrites love to let everyone know on the outside. Look how generous that guy is. Jesus says, I tell you, they've received their reward in full, which is basically just short-term admiration of those around, but nothing more. No, Jesus... And Jesus teaches the Father loves secrecy. Don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And when your Father sees what's formed in secret, then he will reward you. Verse 4. And so again, prayer, where we came in chapter 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. In other words... Everyone's seen what they're doing, and that's it. It's just an empty shell. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Prayer, not the concern of outward appearance, but of the inner secret activity of the heart. I want to come on in a few weeks to talk about what it is we do when we gather, um, uh, uh, not in secret, we gather publicly to pray, when we pray out loud rather than in the quietness of our hearts. And there's much to be said on that and much to be encouraged in that practice. But for now, all of that emanates from the secrecy of prayer, the quiet place of prayer. And you notice it's the Father who will reward that. He rewards the secret things. Verse Four in terms of giving, or verse um, six, is it, in terms of praying, or again in fasting at the bottom of the page there. When you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, don't make it obvious to others. And then the end of verse 18, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Reward comes from the father, the, the, the knowledge of uh, access to him, his presence, the knowledge of his will that we are at one with him, that we are participators in the great kingdom act, all of that 
coming expression of the kingdom. Reward for what is done in secret. Now compare that with the culture in which we live today. So much on public image. So much invested in PR. And public relations. How we come across. How we're seen by others. Image. Brand. What we present is so much more important in the culture in which we live today to who we actually are on the inside. And Jesus is wanting to remind us that character, Christian character, Christ-likeness, to which in Christ we all aspire, Christ-likeness is a secret thing. We know that in nature. When you look, if you want to ascertain the health of a tree or a bush, you need to ascertain the health of the root which is below ground, out of sight, hidden. If you want to establish how secure and strong a building is, then it's the foundation, below ground, unseen, that you need to inspect and survey. If you're wanting to add or extend onto a building, the issue isn't just how big or tall you can go before first you've established how secure and deep and healthy are the foundations. It's not about public It's about secret. Secret. Not private. There's no such thing as a private world to God. God sees everywhere. He's omniscient. He sees and knows everything. We cannot hide from God. Let's fall into the trap uh, in our current parlance of public life and private life. In God's eyes, there's no such thing. But there are secret things. Things that we don't disclose necessarily to others but that are just between us and the Heavenly Father. As someone once said, the secret of prayer is prayer in secret. So whilst it's great to come and encourage ourselves and encourage one another as we gather corporately to pray once a month, I always think it's one hour out of 168 hours in the month that we invite one another and encourage one another to sacrifice in, in public and corporate prayer. Great to do that. But it means nothing if it's not undergirded, rooted, founded in prayer, in secret, behind closed doors, as it were. So preparation for prayer, prayer in secret. Secondly, preparation for prayer, prayer in silence, prayer in silence. And again, I I want to say I'll have much to say on on prayer as proclamation, prayer as shouting, prayer as, as noise. Prayers as as vocal and definitive statements in the weeks to come. But actually, first and foremost, in our noise-clamoured world, prayer, the practice of the presence of God, slowing down, as Bill Hybels would say, to be aware of God. Prayer as silence. One diagnostic of the heart, the state of our heart, is the ability to withdraw from the noise of the world around us, the busyness, the rush, the stress, in order to be silent and still before God. The temptation, as with the pagans, it would seem here, is to attempt to compete with all the noises. Lots of voices all around, so I'll just throw my voice into the pot. I'll babble even more than they do. And Jesus says, 
You're not to babble like the pagans. They think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Interesting, this competition for noise. Almost as if the existing sound levels aren't enough. They, dis- they display themselves by their emptiness. They, they just disappear into nothing, so we need to create more noise. I was struck, um, you know, when Top of the Pops, which has recently uh, finished broadcasting after, what was it, 30, 40 years, but when it first appeared, to have a, to have a live band, and you could, you could hear and see the band play. Wow. And then, then the advent of the music video, where not only do we need to hear the band play and see the band, we need to see the band and hear, them, hear what they're playing, but we also need to see them in some other kind of activity. There's more that we need to cram into this sensory experience. Or again, um, it, when I was growing up as a lad, I was just watching the, the rerun of Match of the Day this morning, or the end of it, with, uh, with my son Luke. And, and when I was growing up watching Match of the Day, and they showed you the goals from the previous day, you just watched the goals, and they had the soundtrack of the crowd cheering. Great. But, but now, what they do is they show the goals with the sound, soundtrack of music. So we've now got two senses. We've got the actual display of football and then the music behind, as if somehow the thrill and the excitement of the football itself is not enough. It's empty in some way, and we've got to fill it with more noise. The number of people, do you see them walking around? Individuals in our city with their ears stopped up with the earphones. Maybe you do that. I do it from time to time, I confess. But I think, what am I blocking out? Who am I not hearing? Just isolating myself with my noise. Babbling, cultural babbling. And Jesus says, we're to get away from that. He doesn't want babbled requests. He doesn't want all the things that we might put before him before, he he does, but not before he's got us. The focus in prayer is not so much to focus on the needs that we bring to our Father as to focus on bringing ourselves to him in his presence. So how are our hearts in our fast-paced world? We're so tempted sometimes, aren't we, to say, oh, I just love five minutes peace and quiet. I just love the world to stop for five minutes. But in that five minutes, can I ask, how easy would you find it to be secret and silent before our Father in heaven? I confess I find it an incredible struggle just to bring myself naked, as it were, shorn of all other props, accolades, attributes, skills, talents, just myself to be still and quiet and secret in the presence of our Heavenly Father. Here's an exercise for this week. 30 seconds, that might be too much. Perhaps it's just 15 or 10. 10 seconds. Sometime this week, uh, away from anyone else, away from everything else. If you're sitting at a desk, can you move your chair or go to somewhere else, to a different place, a new place, a secret place, and for 10 seconds, think of nothing. Try just thinking of nothing. It's incredibly hard to do. Extend the practice. 
20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute. And you'll be in some kind of place to begin the practice of focusing on the first things. Of God and his love for us in Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit empowering our lives for godly living. I know all too often I simply do not get there. I rush through the day. The busyness, the noise, and the babbling that I might offer out from time to time kind of hits the ceiling because I haven't practiced secrecy. I haven't practiced silence and stillness. How are we doing? (laughs) I don't mean this to be a great guilt trip, or at least if it is, it's a guilt trip. I'm walking with you. I, I, I stand here and I confess to you that I know my prayer life The life of prayer in me is nowhere near where I would want it to be. The disciplines that I talk about and I put before you now, I put before myself in wrestling with this week in terms of how often and how effectively I practice silence, practice secrecy, satisfy myself in being known exclusively and solely by an audience of one. In his book, Too Busy Not to Pray, Bill Hybels, He says that the greatest motivation for praying, he finds, is answered prayer. Answered prayer. When when we've sought the Lord for something or someone, and in some way he has revealed his answer, he's sowed something of his heart, disclosed his mind. And that's so encouraging when you, you know in a way that it's difficult to describe, you know that God has met and answered prayer. It inspires us, doesn't it, to pray some more. But all too often, Bill Hybels confesses in his book, and I know this in my own experience, all too often we pray and sense no response, silence, no answer. And so, because it appears there is no answer, we all too easily conclude that maybe prayer is ineffective. And with no answer to prayer in an ineffective practice and activity, we give up altogether. Now, there's a danger in seeing God as a kind of celestial cash machine that we just punch in the numbers in prayer, wait a little bit, and then out comes an answer. And we can go to a sort of rapid prayer, cash till, and uh, prayer in the numbers, pressing the numbers, and it comes out even quicker. There's a danger in seeing sort of God as this uh, heavenly slot machine. But it does say in Scripture several times that when we do these things, when we uh, apply secrecy and apply silence in our prayer discipline, God will reward us. So why don't we make time for this preparation in prayer? Let me conclude just with three brief headings as to why it might be that we struggle in prayer, we become disillusioned in prayer, disenchanted. We're tempted to view prayer as relatively ineffective. The first is because we've begun, we never articulate this, But actually, we've begun subconsciously to believe that God is not able to hear or answer prayer. Maybe the framework with which we work is one that's uh, about, I don't know, roughly 200 years old, I guess. And it is this framework of dividing the the natural and the things that we understand through the observation of natural sciences and the supernatural And increasingly, with our vast knowledge, there's more and more of the world around us in which we live, which we understand, maybe not personally, but we know that someone does. It can be explained. And as more and more of the life around us can be explained, 
then there's less and less in a sense that we, we feel in one sense. We don't understand. And uh, we ascribe to sciences, to wisdom, to understanding, whatever it might be, technology, the things that we understand in the natural realm, and so anything else is just sort of sidelined over here, marginalized, and that we kind of put under the heading of God. And we, we, we kind of divide off our thinking in that way. We understand most of our lives. We are in control of most of our lives. We can influence most of our lives. And if there's something that's just beyond our understanding or our control, it's sort of resign it over, over there to, to God. Uh, and as a last resort, we might go to him and ask if he's got any ideas. It's not a biblical view of God. It's not a biblical view of the world. It's not a healthy way to see our lives. God is God of both, natural and supernatural. The Lord our God is one. Our lives should be seen as an integrated whole within his all-encompassing love and attention and interest. So God uses natural means. He sends the rain, naturally, to water the crops to make them grow. And he uses natural means to supernatural ends. He will send a wind, naturally, that will part the Red Sea and allow the Israelites to cross. And he's perfectly capable, just as easily, to use supernatural means to intervene in the world in which he's created. So he'll raise Lazarus back from the dead to restored life. God is God of the natural and the supernatural. The trouble is that with the World Wide Web and so on, we feel we can do so much, we become self-reliant. And subtly and subconsciously we begin to think that God can't do that kind of stuff. Again, just reflecting on my childhood, um, I, kind of, I, I grew up with this notion that there were just plenty of things I did not know and would probably never know. Um, I sometimes remember asking you know, my parents, um, you know, why this or why that? And they go, oh, darling, I don't know. I thought, yeah, that's, yeah, fair enough. I don't know. We don't know. No one knows. Okay, on we go with life. I just reflected as I observed my children. You know, um, if there's a question that comes up and I sort of say, well, I've got a perfectly good answer for this. Is it good enough for me? I've got the answer. I don't know, darling. And they go, well, I'll look it up on the web. There is a solution. There is an answer. I'll find it. It's only a matter of time. And whilst in a sense that I think it's great that we have so much access to information that there are things that we just don't know or won't understand, things of God in this world, even everyday things. But actually, uh, the world in which we live and the information that we have at our fingertips maybe subtly, subtly pushes God to the margins and we begin to think that he's not able to intervene and answer prayer. God is not able. Secondly, we might actually begin to think and again, this sounds awful as I, as I sort of present it as a proposition. I, and no one would consciously think this, but I wonder whether subconsciously we think that God is not willing to answer prayer. Our prayers are ineffective. We've maybe dried up in our practice of prayer because we believe that God is not willing to answer prayer. You see, we've become so used to having so much instantly. Instant cash, instant hot meals, instant coffee. I remember hearing the stand-up comedian, just forgotten his name, but he said, uh, he was talking about this instant world, he said, I put an instant coffee in the microwave and almost went back in time. Everything now. If you've got uh, internet connection, I wonder, most of us, I, I'm guessing, maybe have access to broadband. Can you remember dial-up? Yeah, you've got dial-up. But hey, 
10 years ago, dial-up internet. Wow. And you remember, I remember my first computer was a 486. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it's just a number that means it was, it's really slow now. But back then, a 486 was just, wow, you've got a 486. I went to college. I said, you've got a 486. Wow. I didn't, I've got no idea about computers, so I have no idea what he meant. But, you know, I had then a fast computer. Now, it's, you'll find it in a museum somewhere. So much, so instantly. And therefore, if we beseech God, we come into his presence, we ask him for something, and there doesn't appear to be an immediate or instant answer. Sometimes I think we can be drawn to the conclusion that that God doesn't like us. He's just not willing to hear our prayer or to answer our prayer or to bless us in some way. Which is why it's so important that as we think of prayer, we continue to soak ourselves in Scripture and the stories of Scripture and the characters in Scripture. God's call on Moses, some 40 years before the call began to be realized, 40 years of waiting. God, are you willing? He's obviously given up on me. I must have heard that wrong. Joseph, abandoned and uh, uh, um, let down by his brothers, languishing in Pharaoh's prison. What's he thinking day after day after day? God, I thought I was the chosen one. I thought I was favored. Finally, when he confronts his brothers, do you know, I think it's Genesis 49 or 50. You meant to harm me, he says, but God meant it for good. He knows that even though there's long periods when apparent silence from heaven, things don't go the way Joseph had thought they would in his life. And yet God had meant it for good. He was testing and teaching him. Or Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, pleading with God on several occasions to take away this thorn, whatever it was, this, this particular acute suffering test for Paul himself. Please take it away. And there's nothing doing. Paul's agonizing with that. Is God not willing? I thought I was his apostle, his herald of the gospel. Me of all people, Lord, surely you'll hear, surely you'll answer my prayer. Until he comes to the conclusion. Uh, Chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, sorry, chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, verse 9. That actually he realizes, he's come to that place of seeing that this is provision of God. That God's strength is made perfect in Paul's weakness. So Paul can even boast of his weakness, that God's strength might be made manifest in him. Hey, that kind of prayer is tough. It's, it's, it's a battle. It, it's wrestling. It's, it's fighting in prayer. The, the divines call it travailing in prayer, this hard, arduous work. It's the kind of prayer that we won't necessarily feel like praying. It's prayer of the will. It's prayer of grim determination. I will put myself in this place at this time. I will come into God's presence even though I don't feel like it. Even though I'm tempted to think that he's not there. He's not listening. He's not active in his world and in, in the world in which I live. Someone once said, if we cannot pray as we ought, then we ought to pray as we can determined to put ourselves into the presence of God because he is willing and he is able. Thirdly, finally, um, I wonder whether our prayer is ineffective and we've grown dry in our prayer life because to use um, current parlance from Catherine Tate, are we bothered? Are, Are we bothered really? 
We have so much. In the West, we are so privileged. We have sensory overload. We have everything, as one commentator once said, everything to live with, and yet so little to live for. We've just grown complacent. We've grown lazy in terms of the discipline of prayer. I tend to think, again, with our children, you know, I, I, I sometimes find myself saying, you know, you, you don't know how lucky you are when I was a child. And then I think, oh, because I hear my father's, you know, echo of my father's words to me. And then I, I go to be with my heavenly father, and it's as if I can hear him saying the same thing to me. You don't know how lucky you are. You, you've grown complacent. You're spoiled. Now lay it all aside your reliance on all these things and come to me. Prayer as preparation. Secret. Silence. So that we can lay these myths and maybe myths that have grown into blockages and barriers of prayer, we can lay them to one side, destroy them actually and come. Prayer as access to know the security of our Father in Heaven. Final story. Archbishop Michael Ramsey was asked once how long he spent each day in prayer to, uh, by a series of uh, was a, a reporter and a bank of reporters there. And um, he thought for a moment and he said, about a minute. Gasps. The, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the whole Anglican, worldwide Anglican communion, spends a minute in prayer a day he quickly qualified it. He said, what I find is that I need to spend about 59 minutes in preparation. 59 minutes slaying the myths. 59 minutes putting aside all the voices that clamor, all the noise of the world, putting it to one side. 59 minutes to, to find that secret place. 59 minutes to silence and still the heart so that for one precious moment... The Archbishop and he alone, shorn of mitre and robes and all the paraphernalia, could come into the presence of God so that he could pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We'll unpack what it is in the coming weeks for us to pray those words as Jesus taught us. But for now, just a moment or two of quiet. I finish speaking. Let's allow the voice of God through scripture, through anything I might have said, as he's been speaking by his spirit, to come maybe to convict us. To come and challenge us. But most of all, I hope, to encourage us. that the effort of finding time and making space is rewarded as we recognize the privilege afresh of praying our Father in heaven. Conscious that... Uh, the Spirit may well be prompting a few of us here in this um, season of prayer to 
uh, establish something of a, maybe a, a, a pattern for the first time, maybe renewing a pattern of prayer. Maybe this is an opportunity now, or perhaps at the end of the service, just to linger up here at the front rather than joining us for coffee immediately. And in a sense, to do that deal with God, if I can put it like that. But to ask for him to guide you in terms of laying aside time, maybe a moment period each day, to practice the preparation of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we can call you Father. That Jesus has taught us to come, to pray, to be with you. That in so doing, our lives may be reoriented, our perspective challenged, our values reassessed, so that we can see your kingdom. And begin to live your kingdom here on earth as in heaven. Father, as the disciples said to Jesus, so we say to you now, please, teach us to pray. We want our lives to be that much more effective for you. We want to be bearers of your glory, bearers of your image. We want to see change affected in our workplaces, in our communities, in our culture so that you might look good. Help us and inspire us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We come to our final hymn. It's an opportunity for us to uh, give financially to the life and work of the church. I recognize that many of us give in many different ways, time and energy and ideas and wisdom. Um, but if you're a regular here, it's an opportunity to give through the, um, uh, well, it really helps if you can use the envelopes at the side of the pews. We can claim the tax back from the chancellor. makes the giving more efficient. If you're a visitor here, please don't feel obliged to give. We've loved having you. Um, so just pass the bag.